2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really quite excited to talk about this book in this episode today. Uh, The book is titled The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe. Um, The book has just come out in 2023 from Penguin, um, and it's written by our wonderful guest today, Dr. Kate Strasden telling us all about the hidden fabric of a Victorian woman's life. Now, literally, the book is about fabric um, from this amazing artifact, I suppose, Kate, that you found um, that you then take us through this multiple journeys on in the book to help us understand literally what these pieces of cloth were and more broadly what it tells us about Anne Sykes's life and the life of women like her in this Victorian period so this is very much a sort of transportive book uh, that takes us to a lot of fun places so I'm curious and excited to see where our interview will go Kate thank you so much for being here Oh, Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's great to be able to to share Anne's world with more people now.
2: Before we get into Anne's world, though, maybe we could get a little glimpse into your world. Um, So if you could please start us off by introducing yourself and explaining sort of how you came to write this book. Sure, um, so I have been a dress historian for
1: uh, oh, a good a good number of years now. I started off as a in museums actually, so I think that love of the artifact and what material culture can say, what inanimate objects can actually convey and and offer has been part of my life for a long time. and so the opportunity to actually study this. This amazing scrapbook in detail and try and make it reveal its stories became just the most amazing quest. It was quite unexpected, uh oftentimes just in ways that I hadn't even anticipated. Uh, and um those lives that that kind of really came out were were quite something. So yeah, starting from that kind of academic, but Um, certainly from my point of view, the museum's background just made those swatches of fabric really come alive in lots of different ways.
2: So obviously a scrapbook, as we use the term today, um, doesn't sound like kind of a book that has a bunch of pieces of cloth in it. Um, That's not really what we think of. Um, So could you tell us a bit about kind of what this artifact actually looks like and to what extent it's unique?
1: yes so it comprises over 2000 swatches of material in that have been pasted into a book that is just over a4 size it started life probably about an inch inch and a half thick it is a marble covered marbled paper covered volume so a bit like a kind of accounting ledger i suppose with a red paper uh, red leather spine and then it was covered by the owner in this bright silk a pink cover, sewn to to create this sort of really vibrant um, outside, and then the keeper of it filled it with these swatches of fabric, and so the book has just got fatter and fatter as as the years passed, and as she pasted in all of these swatches and they cut they range in size from some just a couple of inches across to perhaps some that are larger say five or six inches and often cut into Octagonal shape, so it's a little bit bit like seeing photographs that have been stuck into photo corners. It's it's just kind of cut the corners off, Uh, so they've been they've been fixed in in this very specific way with captions written above each one, and uh, that is how it came to me completely anonymously. There's no indication at first glance about who the keeper was, and it just was this unique. There's very very few of these objects left. There's one in the Victorian Albert Museum from slightly earlier, from the late 18th century. But this is a kind of uniquely 19th century example.
2: And is it unique in that there weren't other ones like it ever? Or did it used to be common and we've just not kept them? I think the latter. I think it was a practice that probably more women did
1: actually uh, did enjoy and there are there are some additional types of object like this in the in the US I found about six or seven volumes in in uh, various collections in America and so I think it probably was more common but I think as with so many other objects that women created that might be perceived as sort of domestic artifacts they were often not valued and so at some point during their uh, the uh, the second life after their creation, they they have either been thrown away or cut up. And so I think it's survival is, is rare, but not necessarily it's creation.
2: So to pick up on something um, that you sort of mentioned that I'd like to make a bigger deal of, uh, because from a methodological point of view, this must have been a mammoth task. Um, you were given this and you weren't told who wrote it, um, whose book it was. No. So... And yet, obviously, in the title, we do know it's The Diary of Anne Sykes. So who was Anne Sykes and how did you find her? Well, this, is,
1: this was one of those things where uh, the, the kind of the devil was in the detail. And I really had decided from the outset that I would start to do in in just a sort of empirical, methodical way decoding the captions and so I bought this I I, it was a very I did it in this kind of very romanticized kind of fashion I bought um, a leather bound volume um, in tribute to whoever had been the keeper then unknown and started to transcribe each page so I wrote at the top uh, you know folio one and made a record of how many swatches were on each page, what the fabrics consisted of, so whether they were wool or cotton or silk, uh, whether it had a pattern, and then what the corresponding caption on each swatch was so that it gradually built up. And there's over 400 pages, so it was no no small undertaking. But by that sort of very methodical process of, of just detailing each of the any small detail really, on each page, I eventually managed to find uh, the the one and only time that the keeper identified herself because all of the swatches had been written in the third person, which was really fascinating. It sort of created a, a distance in a way. It was like she was offering this uh, snapshot of her world, but without making it too personal. So there was only one time that she did actually identify herself, and it's it kind of happened by accident. I wonder if she, if it was sort of incidental to the rest of her endeavours. And she just wrote above one swatch, um, Anne Sykes dress, May eighteen forty, and then it said uh, next to it in very small writing, "The first dress I wore in Singapore," and. Thanks to that singular moment of of uh, sort of waving from the page, that was the swatch that just unlocked the entire volume. Because then, with that name, and and then being able to start to piece together other names relating to it, I was able to find her, and it became really methodologically more of a genealogical search. Then, because I was able to track her and her husband and relatives through the census records. And that's when it all just began to unravel.
2: So for you, obviously, figuring that out um, was the end of rather a lot of work and then prompted even more work once realizing it. Um, but thankfully, readers of the book, we know who she is um, from the beginning. So who was Anne Sykes? Where Where is she from? What years are we talking about? <sighs> Anne was born in
1: 1816 in Accrington, in Lancashire. And she was born to a family who was, even at that point, very, very comfortable. Her father was a man named James Burton. He had been instrumental in a variety of textile technologies in the the 1820s, particularly uh, relating to cotton printing, calico printing. And then he moved into the cotton spinning Industry, and by uh, by the 1830s, he had become a prominent cotton spinner and had opened mills around the town of Tilsley in Lancashire. And so he was really at the heart of that textile, that that huge sort of juggernaut of of industry at that point. And that was the world that Anne was born into. This very comfortable emerging industrialist who who was forging his way with a a number of different cotton mills. And so textiles
2: were were at the heart of her life from the very beginning. And not just her life. Um, One of the things that I found so fascinating about the book and your description of it is that it's not just swatches from her clothes, but her sister, sister sister-in-law, nieces, friends. Um, It illuminates really this whole world of women and kind of what this particular class what this particular group of women's lives were like Um, and you then use that to kind of tell us about those lives and what it would have been like to be any of those women rather than make I mean it's not really in some senses just a biography of this one person Um, was that tricky to write or did that sort of come naturally well it's interesting yes you're right I think
1: it became more a biography of the object and then the people that were included within that. I think Anne maybe saw it as something of a, of a kind of autograph album in a way in that she was gathering these scraps from the women in her life that she encountered at, at different times. So some of them were a constant presence, as you say, some of them were her family members and others were acquaintances that she met at different stages of her life and, and were quite fleeting, fleeting inclusions. So they are the women that very often don't find themselves in the history books or find any kind of research uh, conducted into into their lives because they didn't leave many traces. And I think that's what I found so fascinating. So it was what I decided to do was to start with th- I, I wanted to see how many women I could actually discover something about because over 100 names, different names in the book, and they are predominantly women, there are a few men, but not many. So out of over the 100 different names, I decided that I would try and see if I could find perhaps 20 or 30, where there was enough to actually uncover something about their lives in the records, be it census records or other forms of, of documentary evidence. And then against those names, when I had found those names, I mapped the themes against them. So, for example, um, Anne's niece Charlotte, who is figured prominently in the book, many of the swatches associated with her were made from printed cottons, and her father was actually a designer in a calico print works. And so, it seemed uh, it seemed to make sense that that chapter should be about Charlotte's life, but at the same time the evolution of of the calico print industry at that time. Similarly with an, another character, um, I call them characters, I do feel like they're kind of characters, but another lady called Hannah Kubra, who was Anne's bridesmaid and very good friend, she had sent swatches to Anne of the clothes that she wore when she was in mourning for her mother. And so that chapter became about Hannah Kubra herself, and then the, the various complex kind of mourning etiquettes around the 19th century. So it just sort of evolved really in that way that that women correlated with, with kind of central themes to their lives at
2: that time. Mm. On the idea of kind of these are women that are not in the history books necessarily, um, I very much appreciated that not just in terms of the women's stories, but in terms of kind of which parts of their lives you chose to illuminate. Um, And some of those aspects are thankfully increasingly better known. For example, the massive um, human cost of enslaved labor that went into things like the very prominent uh, cotton mills and families Mm. that financed um, these women's lives. But some of it is still I don't think, at least, that well known. Um, maybe because it doesn't seem like kind of big, high politics, socioeconomic stuff. It's kind of the more practical things that I must admit I always wonder about whenever we see these period dramas. Mm. How in the hell do you clean these clothes? Exactly. That's and I think it's the
1: kinds of things that we we ta- we take so much of that for granted now. All of the kind of minutiae of of maintenance and there's that i think as a as a dress historian of 19th century um object specifically the concept that there are these sort of myths that seem to have built up around garments at that time and the way people wore clothes and one of them is that that people in the 19th century just smelled bad and didn't wash and couldn't clean their clothes that just seems because it's it seems so at odds with the way that we care for our own clothes and in fact they were very very skilled I think because they had a literacy around the materiality of what they owned so they were very much more familiar with the um, the properties of cloth and the behaviour of certain chemicals, and the way that uh, the way that you know boric acid would work on on leather, or you know, they have this kind of knowledge, and and a lot of it is often quite toxic knowledge. They were they were buying things from over the counter in chemists that we we certainly wouldn't buy today, but they did have this very good knowledge of how to to maintain and manage. Um, there's the obvious laundry for, for cottons and linens, which was a very time consuming affair. But beyond that, they had all sorts of different recipes and strategies for keeping their clothes clean and obviously mended. They had great skills in that area as well. So I think in the way that we we imagine ourselves to be so on top of that kind of Cleanliness and and with all of our mod cons, in fact, I think it that is to do a disservice to these women who were very very skilled at, at managing their wardrobes.
2: Because this is something we take so for granted, is there perhaps an example you could walk us through of a particular way of cleaning something or a way of avoiding? I don't know, I just, I always look at these and go, how are your dresses just not covered in mud walking through those streets, for example? Exactly. Exactly. Well, so for example, there are, there were things like,
1: uh, there are those removable components. So when you see in museum collections, they have things like uh, collars and cuffs that might be made out of fine lace or or linen um, and brush braid. Trims, these are things that were removable, easily removable. Maybe we wouldn't consider them easily removable because now anything that needs to be stitched on uh, probably seems like something of a chore. But the idea that to a, um, a gown that wasn't something that you could dump into the tub and wash easily, you have all of your body linen next to your skin. So that protects the dress from your actual skin and vice versa that that is launderable then the areas around your neck and your wrists where things can often get grubby you have you would tack on these collars and cuffs and that would protect that part of the dress from um kind of bodily uh, stains or anything like that there would be internal pads that would so um often be stitched in as kind of um under the arms so in light of the fact that they didn't have the kind of antiperspirants that we have now, they would have pads that they could stitch in under the arms to to just protect the dress from perspiration. And then they would sew a brush braid around the bottom of the hem, and that would be something made of a much stiffer pleated fabric that would removable and cleanable and then be stitched back on. So there are all these kind of – it's almost like protecting the boundaries of the garment – In order to prevent it being soiled in the most obvious ways,
2: fascinating. See, this answers so many questions Um, through what seems like one woman's, just one woman's scrapbook. um, It illuminates all of these aspects. Um, One other thing, kind of, I suppose, in the theme of mysteries, uh, I wanted to ask about was lace, because we still have lace now. Um, But our lace is brightly colored and stretchy and most commonly thought of in terms of fancy lingerie, uh, which is certainly not how we see lace, at least, or think about lace being used in this time period. Uh, And it's not something we think about in terms of skill or expense, but something that was really, really clear in the book was kind of how much thought went into lace, the production of it, the selection of it, and certainly the economics of it. So, can you maybe tell us about kind of the significance of some of the lace you found in the book, and especially what lace was in this time period? Lace is one of those fabrics that I think has undergone
1: such a such a sort of revolution in its in its manufacture that the origins of of, it, of its how it actually worked have very much been lost. So, bobbin lace varies depending on where you're making it, particularly in Europe. And it starts with a cushion, usually uh, either a domed or a round cushion and uh, bobbins. So wooden bobbins that work a bit like um, a bit like a miniature loom in that you have the warp threads hanging down and then you work bobbins left and right to create the pattern um, with a series of pins. It looks when you're when you're doing it, I make bobbin lace, and when you when you're doing it, I know to the to the uninitiated it looks uh, impossibly complicated. Uh, so because of the amount of time it takes, now in the nineteenth century, if you were making a very very fine Honiton lace, which was the finest British bobbin lace at that time, the finest, which was made from a cotton thread that actually isn't produced anymore, there is uh, there were Sort of records that suggest it would take eight to 10 hours per square inch to weave a very, very fine piece of Honiton lace. And so, you know, you can imagine that kind of the economics just don't work out. That as a, um, you can't pay anybody a living wage. There were many lace makers in the southwest of England making Honiton lace as piecework. So they would send their sprigs to uh, a central kind of bleaching house where they would be sewn together to make a much larger flounce, but it was very low paid work and it produces this fabulously expensive cloth. By the beginning of the 19th century there were already innovators who were making machine lace, so uh, a man called John Heathcote had invented a bobinet machine that enabled the kind of base ground, the 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 net to be like a honeycomb net to be woven on a machine, and that was really the beginning of the end for handmade lace. Um, although the machine lace was very expensive to begin with, it gradually the price came down, and uh, hand lace makers sort of gradually went out of fashion. But for a very long time, it had been fabulously expensive just because of the time it took to make and the sort of cobweb really of Patterns that it created. So it's a it's a special fabric. And I think today there are many people who make lace, but it doesn't serve as a practical fashionable cloth now because it, it's just too labour intensive.
2: And so how would this change, given that this change was happening right when Anne was living, purchasing cloth, making dresses, etc., um, how would this change in how lace was made have impacted her and her circle?
1: there are there are a number of lace samples in the album and they are a mix in fact so you're right that it's right at the transition of of there are some pieces that were made by hand and you can tell this by the fact that they're not always even you know handmade handmade lace has anomalies and and individual kind of idiosyncrasies to them whereas machine lace is almost perfectly regular so there's a mix of different pieces it varied in quality and so you could buy slightly cheaper handmade laces uh, and they they were prized because lace could be used to retrim things. So you could take, for example, you could take the trimming from a handkerchief and attach it to something else. You could send um, a, li- a length of lace to a friend as a small gift and so it acted as a part of this back and forth, this transactional kind of friendship Uh, It it was an easy way to connect people because it was something ephemeral, but valued at the same time. So you do see it in the album. But yes, it's that real mix of of hand and machine right on the cusp of this transition.
2: Well, Anne was also at uh, the cusp or the forefront, really, of other transitions in um, cloth that you talk about. And this, in a lot of ways, seems to go back to kind of where she's from and what her family was involved in. Um, And of course, this is like massive patterns and prints, especially um, on cotton. Uh, You described, uh, I remember some of the patterns you described as, goodness, imagine what that would have looked like for a whole dress. That would have been rather a lot um, to have that particular pattern. So Clearly clothes then, um, this is obviously a massive oversimplification, but just like now, kind of what colors you wear, what cloth you wear, all that sort of stuff um, has meaning and has indications of interests, socioeconomic status, um, kind of where you are on the cutting edge is very much true of today's clothes. What did things like wearing silk or wearing cotton or wearing printed cotton, what sorts of indications did those different kinds of cloths have at this point? It is as true then as
1: we as as you say as we as we experience dress now that the idea of um, using dress to kind of it's codified in so many different ways. And in Anne's lifetime, she really did witness and take part in all sorts of different, technologies that proved she was really you know I think the idea is often that fashionability just happens in urban centers and certainly she's living in a uh, she was living in this very busy bustly textile sort of industrialised area but would have been considered perhaps provincial and yet her scrapbook is anything but. So the printed cottons are absolutely vibrant at a time where these roller printing technologies were taking off. This was the point where previous methods of printing onto cotton had relied on the old woodblock method where a repeat is quite it it takes some time to achieve because you are single-handedly a person is moving a wooden block down the length of fabric to create the the repeat what happens in Anne's lifetime is the creation of of rollers copper rollers that were engraved with the pattern and then you could speed up the process enormously and you could also create um over so you could you could do one print run and then uh, print another pattern on the top and that's obvious in the album just the complexity of these patterns and they are wild they look like uh, some of them just look like they could have been printed yesterday they really are quite something uh, She's also at the, you see this change then happen in the 1850s when aniline dyes and some of these early synthetic dyes had become fashionable and suddenly the pages of the album are filled with purple, bright purple uh, dyed cloth, which was very fashionable and representing again another kind of technological shift. So Anne was definitely, you know, open to and partaking in all of these different technological kinds of um, exciting moments in textile development.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. So speaking of exciting
2: moments, um, but probably not of textile development, uh, not quite every piece of fabric in the book is from a dress. In fact, there is a scrap of a pirate flag. Why? I know, that's, that's the
1: one that um, <laughs> absolutely took my breath away when I found it, because it just, out of nowhere, and I think... What I loved is that it's on the same page as a a swatch from a pair of Adam's birthday slippers. So the the kind of juxtaposition of these two things, it kind of sums up the whole book, really. Um, Anne and Adam, her husband, moved to Singapore in 1840. Adam was a merchant and was given the job of heading up operations for his firm in the region. And Anne travelled with him, and they lived there for seven years, right at this very... It was a, a newly kind of emerging European community there at that point, but very little in the way of, um, you know, it was it was a it must have been a quite a frightening time to live there for somebody like Anne who was grown up in this very small um, British sort of northern damp town, and finds herself in this place that is subject to frequent tiger attacks and there is very little in the way of uh, medical uh, intervention or anything like that. And there are frequent pirate attacks. The local area, because the merchant shipping was becoming so uh, widespread and and obviously very lucrative, um, there would be pirate ships that would sort of ply the waters up and down the straits. And so Admiral Sir Thomas Cochrane was given the charge of anti-piracy operations, and he was on board HMS Agincourt. So it was quite, once I had this, the caption actually reads part of the pirate flag taken by the Admiral in 1845, and so I was able to track down the Admiral in question. And records from the local, from the Singapore newspapers at the time often record Admiral Cochrane calling into Singapore to resupply his ship but he would also attend local social events like balls and, and so at some point he encountered Anne who badgered him perhaps for this piece of uh, something to add to her album and, and he gave her this little swatch of red flannel and so there it
2: is just the most unexpected of swatches. I'm how how does how does one acquire a pirate flag well this is i mean he he had obviously i
1: i can't imagine that he was by all accounts he was a he was quite a a pompous character and so at one point at some point when he had he had captured this pirate ship one of the pirate ships and and taken their flag and it's red flannel which actually means no call to given as as in in pirate flag kind of semiotics it's a pretty terrifying um, example because the idea of the red flag was no mercy so it is it is a pretty horrifying object or it would have been for the person that was seeing that flag come towards them so at some point after the admiral capturing that flag and and he had obviously kept it as a i guess a record of his uh, achievement he agreed to part with this little swatch of it to to give to this this lady from Lancashire and um, she I yes I wonder what she had thought of that it's a it's such a remarkable kind of thing in what looks like a very ordinary
2: piece of, of red wool quite intense I obviously had to ask you about the pirate flag um I can only imagine what it would have been like kind of to realize what it was for the first time exactly. Uh, But to move from the pirates uh, back to kind of the larger scale changes that Anne was um, part of and witnessing, Um, so I guess the pirate flag was a bit of a detour, but thank you for bearing with me. (laughs) Um, It wasn't just cloth that was changing. I found this really interesting. And again, really appreciated that you went into this because this is, I think, something we take for granted and don't fully understand, that women bought cloth, um, not cloth clothes, and then you had to go make the dresses yourself, or you had to go to another specialist who would then make the dress. Um, Whereas today, we obviously just buy the actual garment ready-made most of the time. Um, And so obviously, something has changed between Anne and us, or realistically, a lot of things have changed. Uh, And some of this actually seems to have happened in Anne's life, right? Things like the sewing machine, things like the department store. What would these sorts of innovations meant for the process of Anne acquiring these clothes?
1: Yeah, so in Anne's youth, and certainly up until the early 1850s, all of, all of her clothes, every piece of item of clothing that she had in her wardrobe would have been entirely hand-stitched, apart from perhaps stockings, which could have been, that was one of the early kind of innovations, uh, as a stocking machine. But most things, everything, in fact, uh, apart from that from from say a stocking would have been stone by hand and that would have involved again i think it's this idea that people were much more invested in understanding how their clothes worked and what fabrics they wanted to use for their cloth for their clothes so they would buy the cloth from a haberdasher or a draper or a a, a warehouse a cloth warehouse they would have very good knowledge about what the properties would be how hard wearing it would be uh, what they wanted it to be made into they would take that to their favoured maker most people would take their cloth to a dressmaker and dressmakers varied in, um, in, in price so you would take it to the dressmaker and there would there would be that conversation about what it would become. Um, there might be a, a process of alterations where you would you would return again and it would be fitted and altered. And it meant that you were much more invested in understanding and maintaining and keeping your clothes because they had come with this kind of conversation attached and of course that's how the scraps come about because when you take the cloth that you own to the maker you also receive back the scraps that are left over and that is how Anne is then able to acquire these scraps from other people that she can put into her album so she wasn't sort of um I think there is that idea that she was perhaps uh, accosting people in in the drawing room or something with a pair of scissors and and trying to um, remove part of their their garment. But it was that these scraps existed and she could use them. But certainly from the eighteen fifties onwards, the sewing machine meant that there were things could be made more quickly for for certain. And it, and really, the advent of the sewing machine and then. Uh, the the department store meant that increasingly the idea of uh, mass production, not as we know it now, but certainly the concept of of making something that's partially ready made that might only need uh, a, a less complex fitting, starts to develop, and you can really see the origins of of how we observe fashion happening now or the or the garment industry being this very very fast paced it all starts to develop from the mid 19th century onwards
2: and this was obviously really um important kind of thinking through these conversations right if you're if you're creating a dress then you could and you would, of course, talk about it with your friends. Oh, I've got this cloth. What am I going to do with this? Or, um, oh, let's make ones that match or that reflect each other. You know, it it brought in a lot of ways kind of the social aspect of this book um, very much to life and and also the idea of kind of thinking through so much the purpose of each item of clothing, which then when when I got to the part of the book where you describe kind of the rules around this, you know, what do you wear at lunch versus dinner versus this versus that, uh, there was a lot to talk about, I would imagine, amongst one's friends to arrange a wardrobe accordingly. Could you take us through what some of these norms and expectations of what to wear when
1: Yes, and it was important. The etiquette of appropriate garments were important at this point. And I think it's worth remembering that that's because this is a space in life that women over which women had agency. There's so much of their world that is not within their control, whether it's marriage, whether it's um, money, or, or the ability to make decisions about their children, if they had them. The so, dress is often. I think it's one of the things that is often comes under under fire, really, as being ephemeral and not serious and and shallow. But in fact, it was enormously important to the way that these women were able to control and shape their lives and and have agency over their appearance. Um, and so, these these codifications were mattered at that time so you would you would have in the morning uh, a a sort of undress as it was called so uh, a looser gown that was something that you would wear at home and you could receive visitors in but it wasn't something you would wear outside then you might change into something if you were going to visit people so a a kind of afternoon or a visiting dress that would take you out and about, or it might be a walking dress. If you were certainly in Singapore, there were spaces where people would walk at different times of day when it was a little cooler. So that kind of, uh, the garment that was public was very much for public consumption for people to see you in. Then you might dress, uh, change again into something that was more relaxed in the afternoon, uh, later afternoon. And then people dressed for dinner. Um, but also after dinner, they might dress for, uh, the ball or the opera or something like that obviously this is if you're in a particular kind of um operating within a particular social strata but it did require these different um etiquettes and understandings about short sleeves and and low decolletage was for a very particular time of of the evening if you're going to a ball um, a slightly higher neck but short sleeves was acceptable for dinner um a much higher neck and long sleeves was daytime so there were these kind of markers that were important to women and indicated your uh your intentions and, and that kind of that time of day. So it's not to be dismissed. I think it's easy to to write dress and fashion off as being ephemeral, but it, it really mattered as part of their social, social world.
2: I would love to pick up on something you mentioned earlier in the same sort of vein, the etiquette of mourning dress. Um, it's not just black, all black and nothing else. There's a lot of nuance to it. And I guess I'm wondering if you can take us through a few of those and also maybe to what extent was that also an opportunity for women to kind of control their space in their lives or was that more externally imposed when it came to widows and funerals and things like that?
1: There's an interesting dichotomy between what men were wearing and what women were wearing. There was certainly uh, less explicit... Requirements for men to display mourning, so they would wear black, or they but and certainly they would wear a black armband for band for a period of time. But for women, it was much more complicated, uh, particularly if the person that had died was a close relative, uh, their husband or a child, and so the period of mourning was very complicated. In some ways, though, I think it's that. It's that unspoken pathway through grief that means you don't have to talk about it all the all of the time in ways that might have, um, you know, it was it was a it was a way of displaying at what stage your grief was at in a way, which sounds odd, but certainly it's marking the passage of time. And so the first uh, sort of most the the period of grief or the period of mourning directly after somebody had died, was represented by all crepe. So crepe was a a matte fabric. The idea was to have a a cloth that didn't have any surface shine to it. So crepe was this sort of wrinkly black fabric that didn't have uh, a shine to it. So that was the first stage of mourning. The second stage of mourning was Reducing the amount of crepe that was on your dress, so you could start to wear clothes that had a bit more shine or a rib, a a black ribbon, but still certainly all black. And then gradually you pass through these different carefully coded stages until finally, after um, almost two years have passed, you would you would find yourself in kind of half mourning, which was a perhaps a lilac dress or a cream or a grey with a black trim, and it represented the this kind of final stage of mourning for women that uh that meant you were sort of emerging from the other side and for for certainly for some women it meant that that was the point that they might consider um remarrying or you know but it was just an interesting i think it's an interesting way of expressing grief perhaps more obviously than we
2: do now. Yeah, thank you for taking us through that. I think it was um, a really interesting kind of way to see what was important. Like I've never really thought about the shininess of clothing um, when it comes to sad things, but Mm -hmm. it immediately sort of made sense as part of a stage um, as well as the sort of signaling effect, right? If someone sees you all in black, they're probably not going to ask questions that might in that moment feel quite hurtful. Um, Yes, so there's some kind of practical aspects that I hadn't fully considered. Uh, but we are going to leave mourning behind and go back to kind of happier things as we come towards the last few questions. This book, as you already mentioned, right, runs to over 400 pages, right? tons of different fabrics, uh, lots going on that you had to decipher and unpick did you have any that you found were especially unique or favorite that kind of particularly grabbed you at this process? I think one of the ones that I found the most interesting because
1: it was unexpectedly rare was one that just had the name uh, Margaret Charnock above it. Uh, There are times in this kind of research where the back and forth eventually you you put things together and make connections that hadn't been there before. So so there were no other dates and no other clues above this particular printed cotton sample other than the name. And so I didn't really think anything of it until I had returned back one day to the census records of uh, 1851. And I was looking at the people that had been visiting Anne and Adam on this census record. They'd returned to Lancashire by this point. They never had children. And so on the census records, there was Anne and Adam, and then there were, her. I think her father was staying with her, and they had a couple of other guests. But then this name at the bottom of their household leapt out at me because it was familiar, and I realised I'd seen it before. And it said Margaret Charnock. And when I read across the line on the record, it said that she was their cook. And that made this swatch in the book very unusual because... Records of working class dress are, are very rare. Certainly, the materiality of working class dress is very rare. Partly because it it was never something that museums would have collected in the nineteenth and early twentieth century. It wasn't. It didn't really fall into the kind of um, decorative arts remit at that point. Whereas now it definitely would but also because it would have been worn to the extent that it would perhaps eventually have have entered the secondhand market and perhaps further and further along the process would have ended up as as a kind of rag and being turned to pulp. So to have this swatch of of their cook's dress in the book, I found fascinating because it did open up a whole other world. And I was able to find out quite a lot about Margaret because she was in, because I could find her in the records. I tracked her back to her family in the Ribble Valley. She grew up on a farm. She entered service as a sort of maid of all work and then had worked clearly very hard to make her way to the position of cook.
2: And so that was a life that I found just fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, That's definitely one of the ones that kind of stuck in my mind um, because of that uniqueness of it. Um, so it's interesting to hear that it also stuck in yours. Um, on a similar vein, kind of this whole process had a lot of surprises from even just figuring out her name in the first place. Um, yeah. But was there anything about the process or the book itself that surprised you that you wanted to mention to listeners? I think it's just that sense of starting out with an object that,
1: First, for quite some time, I thought would just remain really this amazing curiosity, uh, important in as much as it contained these these swatches of brightly coloured, because they'd been kept in the pages of the book, it meant that they had not faded. So in that sense, they were fascinating f- just because uh, you got this idea of how very vibrant the 19th century was. But being able to place real names and real people and and real life experiences against these tiny swatches of fabric I think that was the that was the most exciting thing for me that you could actually begin to uh, rebuild these these people in in your mind's eye and start to imagine what these little fragments actually represented and the and the the lives that they Uh, touched on that was that was the most exciting and it's and it continues to be exciting I've just had uh, just last week I had somebody get in touch with me who's read the book and I mentioned about some of the names that you know I just hadn't managed to find anything about It had proved too difficult because there perhaps weren't any marriage dates or anything like that and she got in touch to say oh one of the names you mentioned in the book I know who that is I've been doing research about that person and and they did know the Sykes and this is what they did and so so I think there are still more stories that that
2: might yet might yet be uncovered that's brilliant. Um, and to any listeners who are intrigued by this, I will say that in addition to having all these wonderful details um, about the cloth, about the women, about their lives, um, it's a very readable book. It's very sort of immersive and transportive, but not in a dry, overwhelming. Oh my goodness, I'm never getting out of this 800-page monster way. Um, <laughs> well, so that was always my intention. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that 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 has
1: come across. Thank yes, you. Yes.
2: Well, so if there's any listeners who are intrigued perhaps to investigate these details further Um, they should I think find this quite an enjoyable process Um, but before I wrap up reminding them the title of the book and all those other nice things uh, is there anything you might be working on uh, next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's about dresses that you'd like our listeners to be aware of I do um I'm I'm about to start a new research project that's that's looking at
1: again I realize a lot of my research over the years has been about hidden women I've always found these kind of voices of of women that that rarely have a light shone on them um fascinating and so I'm going to be writing about the suppliers to the royal family where the royal women are actually completely incidental to the story they feature hardly at all and it's actually the uh the shoemakers the the dressers the laundry maids the um the tailors the dressmakers they are the front and center of of this story and um yes i'm looking forward
2: to getting getting going with that well that sounds very exciting um if that becomes a book do let us know we'll have you back and you can tell us all about it thank Um, you But in the meantime, while you are off investigating uh, the intricacies of that life, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled The Dress Diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes, Secrets from a Victorian Woman's Wardrobe, um, just out in 2023 from Penguin. Kate, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely
1: to chat with you.